Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey folks, Michael Michael here, Food Talk, the March edition. Hey, we've got a great show today. I've got th- uh, three sets of guests in studio, and I'm thrilled. All of them are rock stars. This is one of the weeks when I really was stoked about doing the show. Not that I'm not always stoked, but we just I, we lined up some great people. So let's go straight in. Well, my, my first two guests. Mm-hmm. If you're in the food space and you haven't heard of them, you've been a sleeper in a coma the last month. The name of the book is Co... Well, what is the name of the book? <laughs> Koreatown, but the way it's spelled, I, I know it's Koreatown. It's, name of the book is Koreatown. Mm. The authors are Chef Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard. Otherwise, Rod. I, your friends refer to you as Rod. Uh, you can call me Matt Rodbard by my my given name. Appreciate that, Michael. <laughs> we could we could do Matt uh, again. Name of the book is Koreatown. It's been all over the wires. They've gotten a ton of press, and for good reason. Um, we're going to get the whole story of how you did the research for this book, which must have been exciting as hell, but mm-hmm. congratulations. Thank you so much. Is this the first book of its type that sort of chronicles Koreatowns? And- I think it's the, it's the first book written from the perspective of Koreatown. You know, the books in the past, which we, we like and we've read, are written in like YouTube studios and, and home kitchens, and some were translated from Korean uh, from food professors in Seoul. But uh, yeah, this is the first time uh, a, a duo of uh, journalists, myself and Chef Duke, uh, traveled around the country and you know really just dove into the Korean food and culture. Absolutely. So, in the interest of full disclosure, my wife is Korean, born in Korea, born in Busan, born and raised. Comes from a family of Presbyterian ministers. Actually, um, we met the culinary school. She came to New York to get her MFA at Pratt back in the late seventies. Then, second career choice was uh, with culinary school. So we've been living together. Well, we, she moved into my apartment in 82 to do her internship. Um, then went back to graduate. Then we had separate apartments. But, anyway, but anyway, so I've been eating in K-Towns forever. Yeah. Like, but it was like really like a hole in the wall. And I would get asked all the time by people, you know, because people know I'm an ex-chef, used to be a chef, food's what I do. You know, why isn't Korean food more popular mm. or whatever? And I remember just my takeaway has always been Maybe it's not so true anymore, but like I can tell you, as a white guy going into Korean restaurants in the 80s and 90s, a lot of times they'd kind of meet you at the front of the restaurant, hand you the menu, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't seat you, and the reason was because Westerners would come to Korean, like different Korean restaurants, and Mm -hmm. expect the same menu. Like, what do you mean you don't have bibimbap, or you don't have mandu, or you don't have we came here for japchae, we don't do japchae, right? Oh. Or, or and they would so they'd come up, mess up the table, drink the water, and leave without order. And this, yeah. I, I saw this with my own eyes a lot. So it was sort of like if you were a non-Korean coming into Korean restaurant, mm-hmm. like the hipster, like what we get out here with the hipster straight. I was like, wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute, mm-hmm. before you sit down. But to, but in their defense, one and and my answer to the question why isn't more popular is I think that the Korean chefs in these restaurants were cooking for the Korean audiences mm-hmm. only. They weren't you know the Chinese came the Chinese are so malleable wherever the Chinese have traveled in the world they'll change their cuisine to adapt so it's mm-hmm. Cuban Chinese so it's Peruvian Chinese. Right. They came to America and they made this other thing right. Mm-hmm. They could make it sweeter and less spicy. Um, Japanese food's so refined in a way that it kind of didn't the edges are already smoothed off of mm-hmm. it. And Korean food's just in your fucking face. Oh, like man. if you don't like if you don't like red pepper flakes, yeah. if you don't like garlic, if you don't like all kinds of fermentation, textures, I mean, fermentation, yeah. what are you doing? Right. And, you know, you, you definitely nailed it right in the head. And, and you're right. It's it's really a food that's uh, very for us, by us uh, uh, food. And it's our mentality. Uh, we don't have any desires. And we say we've said it before, like um, at least our parents' generation, it's survival sake. You know, it's we missed the food and and. Um, kind of the taste of our uh, motherland so we're not it wasn't like hey let's get this critic in here or let's get this stars from Yelp or you know we're just like we just want a good bowl of you know 
Kamzatan. So I'm going to make Kamzatan. You like it? Great. If you don't like it, great. And it, it was a business、uh, proposition. The early immigrants to New York City, it wasn't like we need to make a fancy restaurant. We need to like, make money. And like,、mm-hmm. let's just let's cater to the Korean audience. And, and that work ethic, you know, again,、yeah. I, when I first came to New York, it was kind of the explosion of the Korean deli,、oh, which was、yeah. this new thing. And who were, this was for like educated professional husbands and wives、mm-hmm. who, because there was money available in that space via the Korean community,、right. not bank money, but personal loan money, you know,、mm-hmm. if you're willing to work your ass off and run a 24 hour deli,、yeah. <laughs> jump in. And the only people who were signing up were Korean expats. Yeah. Or if you want to run a 24 hour Soup restaurant, too. Which is what, I mean, because 32nd Street, for as long as I've known it, and this,、mm-hmm. we're going way、yeah. back before this was cool, b e f o r e the Lower East Side didn't shut down until four. <laughs> Haytown, I remember,、yeah. I remember when Gamay Oak first opened. I remember、mm-hmm. the guy, he was a husband and wife, and he was really cool, and he had this idea. He traveled around Korea, and he had、yeah. this idea. He wanted to do Salong Tan,、right. and he wanted to do really great kimchi. And in the beginning, like this, I don't know if you remember this, but、mm-hmm. before it kind of went off the, off the rails, I mean, he had like a guy, he had like a kimchi chef. There was like, this old guy that was just doing like rotating vintage、mm. batches of ginchi、yeah. down in the basement in these big earthquakes. Oh, at Gamio? I mean, they, they were doing that probably like five years ago before it unfortunately closed. They make- were doing that in the late 80s. So、yeah. he opened. It was my f r i e I'll never forget the first time I had Salong Tan. Wow.、Yeah. I just sit down, and, and my point was I would eat, I would eat Salong Tan for breakfast. I'd have it for lunch. <laughs> I'd have it on the way home from the Village Vanguard at 2 30. <laughs> yeah. The place the never closed, and 32nd、yeah. Street never closed. Exactly. Now, That was like the original restaurant. Well, I think Solantang is a great example of what we dive into in the book. I mean, we are not talking about tacos and barbecue in this book. I mean, that's, that's been done. We want to talk about the soups and, and stews、mm. of Korea. I mean, we write, and I'll go to the mat, and Duki will go to the mat. The, the Koreans are the soup masters of Asia. Com- you, you posted that somewhere and you get shit on by the phone. <laughs> totally yeah, got、uh, shit on. Phone ramen camps. You can go to the mat. I Dude, go the, the, the Laksa community, man, they were like up in my grill. <laughs> But really, you know, this book and, and Korean food in general, it's, it's such a, an, intricate and, an intricately、yeah. woven web of,、yeah. uh, of food、uh, culture. You know, it, it's so cool to, to be able to explore this、um, with Duki as kind of the, my guide. You know,、yeah. that when we wrote the book, you were, we were just cooking in your home, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was just go to H Mart, buy, you know, and knock out seven ingredients. I have, I have a third floor walk up. So it was not like we're not cookbook authors. I mean, now no, I guess, I we, guess are. we are now. We are now. I, yeah, I'm a, I'm, <laughs> I, I cook for a living.、Yeah. So we didn't have any、uh, kind of like, how do we do this? There w a s no rules. We were just like,、mm-hmm. what do you do? Just make the recipes. And, you know, you go back on to the fact that when you think, you know, when I say, hey, Koreatown, it's probably like the first few words coming out is like probably barbecue or, or you know, Soju you know, bomb. Or pibimbap or soju, or probably like late night is probably in there somewhere. And that just kind of speaks to kind of our parents' generation where like we're going to survive whether you like it or not. In the middle of America in the 70s is probably when the first wave of Korean a m e r i c a n s And that's when you were、came. eating in Koreatown. Let me ask yeah, you, you know, Mike, tell me about Koreatown in 78, 81. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. I, mean, it, it, I mean, I remember, so 82 is when I came here. I can't、yeah. speak to the 70s, but it was a really distinct block. And it, only, it was only from Broadway to Fifth. Yeah. yeah. But it was, you'd come out of that N train or R train or whatever you were, you'd pop up on that corner because、yeah. there's a 32nd Street entrance. And I forget the name of that hotel. That, that hotel's changed hands a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be homeless people living upstairs there, dude. <laughs> the restaurant where Gamioke is, that hotel used to be housing. It was a beautiful building.、Right. Like back in the shit. Days, it was a shitty part of town. No, no, back in the cracker. That was a、yeah. that ho- hotel、really? for homeless people. The city、yeah. owned it or the owner just made a deal、yeah. with, to, to, to warehouse people.、Mm-hmm. But it was the craziest block because literally for one block, there were no signs in English.、Uh-huh. Like, You didn't hear English being spoken.、Yep. And I think because of the Korean community,、uh, between the professionals that work crazy hours and, and the, and the、uh, deli people that work crazy、mm-hmm. hours, and then the tourists that were coming in and the waitresses off of airplanes,、yeah. I mean, you'd sit down there at 2 30 in the morning、yeah. and the restaurants would be full,、mm-hmm. mostly non Western.、Mm-hmm. And it could be KAL waitresses, it、yeah. could be a bunch <laughs> of guys that own delis. It was just for Koreans, by Koreans,、yeah. and that was、yes. it. And we, so we see that in other parts of the country that, we've, that we did, you know, traveled to, which is so cool about our project. Like we went to Atlanta. But not just Atlanta, Duluth, Georgia, 25 miles northeast of the city. And we found what Koreatown was like, you're describing, in the 80s. I mean, we found this community of Hangul is the only,、uh, only language written on the signs, and it's a very much a for us, by us community. You're finding that in parts of Los Angeles, which is the, the heart of heart, Korea. Number one. Yeah, it's the yeah. number one place. And you're seeing restaurants that just do Samgetang, which is the ginseng and chicken soup. You're finding restaurants that do Solotang, Mandu, Sunday, all the classics that we cover in the book. That's what's so great about. 
Korean food is it's unspoiled, man. It's like this is like such an interesting topic. Like yeah, yeah. they've never made there were no compromises. No, and I think that's that's and that's why I thought it would never break out yeah. because you have to it's be like I don't mind I don't mind hot. I love gochujang. I'm an Italian. I eat garlic like I don't know in my household exactly. if we measured our garlic intake during the year it's like it's like in the hundreds of fucking pounds. Yeah. I mean we make a deal like she soaks it I peel it like yeah, we go yeah. through like and so. There's, but then there's also it's funny because everyone thinks of barbecue and and just certain dishes, right? Yeah. Um, but then there's like a real delicate side to it. There's yeah. like a vegetarian side. There was before Korea became Christian, yeah. Before the Japanese occupation, before mm-hmm. all the shitstorms of the last of that took place last century, yeah. There was a big Buddhist population and a lot of the Korean what's that restaurant on 32nd off of Madison yeah. on the south side it's a husband and wife Hangawi Hangawi yeah. my god vegetarian restaurant it's so good yeah. Yeah. you go when you take your shoes off you're kind of sitting on the floor real mm-hmm. traditional I mean there's this real delicate side and yeah. then lots of those pickled roots and dried yeah. ferns yeah. And, and like people don't really you know Realize that, yes, like in Korea, like barbecue is not like it's a peninsula, you know, so <laughs> beef and pork is not it's not ample. like we eat a lot of fish. Right. But within that, like temple, yeah. like it, it is a very big Buddhist. Uh, uh, it's very prevalent there. Thirty five percent, I think. Is yeah. Buddhist and, you know, the temple cuisine is super. Um, I don't want to say it's big, like everyone's eating temple food, but it's a very big part of uh, Korean cuisine and that the delicacy, the vegan, um, you know, plants and uh-huh. a lot of like light seasoning. You think, you know, Korean barbecue right now, like Heavy seasoning, right. funk, yeah. and all of that. But you said it like right on the flip side. There's this like really delicate, kind of like sushi. Like when yep. um, Japanese who you think about like I think about ramen and it's like super like hearty, brothy. And then you think about like really nigiri and sashimi. There's this like beautiful dichotomy where. Mm-hmm. You can you can get the vegetarians along with the meat lovers along all in the same room, but they're and they're all eating uh, Korean food, but they're all like satisfied in a sense. So there's yeah. something about and uh, it. let me I think the seafood point is really important to stress. Mm-hmm. Like it is a peninsula, it's a peninsula. Miles Both sides, like Florida, yeah. it's shaped like so Florida. It is yeah. so seafood is is the prominent predominant protein. You're you're having yeah. you know you're having grilled mackerel, you're having yeah. anchovy stock and clams. You're, you're eating you're, live octopus, like yeah. you know, like when people people forget that we fish from the same sea of Japan. So like yeah you know, Japan is known for like fresh fish, and I was like, "Yeah, but we." So is we, Korea, guys. We, yeah, we. we, um, we and and one more thing to say about seafood is the raw seafood culture. Mike, have you ever had hue before? No. The, it's uh, the way that Koreans eat raw seafood is in, um, unlike in Japan, where it's aged for several weeks and it's very buttery in your mouth. In Korea, they pull uh, mackerel or octopus or any anything out of the tanks, kill it right away, and uh, and, and serve it. So you know when you kill fish, it sets rigor mortis sets in, so it's very chewy. And you're dipping it not in soy sauce, but in a sauce called chojang, which is gojujang mm. and rice vinegar and maybe a little bit of uh, pineapple juice. And you're uh, you're dipping it in, you're chewing on it, it's chew, 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 chew. But it's it's for Koreans and for myself, non-Korean, but someone who loves Korean food, it's it's unlike any other raw seafood kind of experience. It's unlike anything I've ever heard of. I mean, yeah. that's the first culture it, I've heard that does that. It's very, and you can find a place in New York um, called Bada Story up in Queens. They do they do some great hue there. Damn Queens. Damn Queens. <laughs> Got it every. That's the real Korean town. It's, it's, I know. You're the, there's like the whole, there's this whole camp of ethnic foodies where everything's better in Queens. Uh, yeah. It's like, you want Chinese Queens? You want Korean Queens? You want Thai Queens? Uh, queens, 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 Queens. Yeah. Mexican Queens. Like, what that's the what they are. That's I live in the Lower East Side. How do I get to Queens? I, know. I need an helicopter. Well, you take the Long Island Railroad, man. It's like 20 minutes. You got get off at uh, sure. Murray Hill. It's, it's So, do you got in traveling around, let me ask you a question because I can speak of, we filmed in some Korean kitchens over the years. Mm. Um, because we won, I mean, I won, I think my first season, we did a show on uh, on Hangawi. Or no, on... Um, Gamiok? On Gamiok. Because yeah. I really wanted to, I thought that we'll talk about how Salongtan is made, because yeah. it blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, what those boiling cauldrons actually were when I found it's out. It's been boiling like since the Reagan administration. 48 hours, yeah. two yeah. sets of bones. Yes. It's, and then at the end, they throw a whole brisket in and just Absolutely. let that go. So this is yeah. crazy. And all the years of cooking, like, French and classical stuff, where you learn how to make clear stocks yeah. and simmer. That's exactly what we don't want. The opposite. This is <laughs> yeah. a hard boil. Yep. You're adding water, and yeah. you're just reinforce letting... Reinforce it, reinforce and it. It's yep. just, and it becomes cloudy, but it's like a revelation. But but when I would go in the kitchens, I think I can speak with authority for the ones that I, I've been in in New York mm-hmm. City. The k- Korean restaurant kitchens in New York, the staff, the cooks, yeah. the chefs, 99% women. 
Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. Like you're a new generation. Mm-hmm. David Chang's like the new face, but like I don't know what it is about Korean men. It's like a cultural thing. Yeah. They don't want to cook. It's all women in all the great kitchens in New York City that I've noticed. Yeah, like the Korean moms. Like for me, when I and you could ask probably a hundred Koreans, maybe my age, like who cooked in your household. 99 maybe probably is going to be mom, you know, and um, they're just, you know, Korean men are doing 10 other, like, they're they're like office guys, or, or salary people, like, cooking, like you just said, is like, it became an option, like, for me, I grew up in a household where um, hey, mom, I'm going to culinary school. All right, we support you. That's super rare. That doesn't yeah, happen. Like, I was about yeah. to say. As long as yeah. it's, it doesn't say doctor, lawyer, or Correct. whatever. You know, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, right. So so you don't want to collect trash. You're going to go to cooking school. Yeah. Same shit, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the <laughs> women that were, were cooking. So now the women, so, you know, what I've heard was that the men are doing like this, like, you know, my dad does like taxi and whatnot. So I was like, what do the women do? Like, both my parents were immigrants. So not, it wasn't, I was in a position where just my dad worked. So both parents are working. My mom knows how to cook. So she, even my mom was working in like uh, the food industry service, like waitressing or, or whatever it is. So, you know, like, I don't, I don't doubt that most. You know, I think it's changed a little bit in the past few years, but right because you're yeah. a big. I, when I talked, I haven't been on a CIA grad '82, mm. but I haven't been back. I'm not like one of these braha. You know, yeah. like, well, I want to come and do. So I have, I've been back like twice, yeah. but I meet the guys. You know, yeah. I know the guys that still run it because they were there. I mean, I was there when Ferdinand Metz was there, but wow. the guy Pardis, that takes Michael over, Partis is he did? But they you were probably there before. But Michael then Partis. there's like like they tell me that like 10, 15 percent of the CIA is Koreans right now. Yeah. Korean, either Korean Koreans or Korean Americans. It's the yes. biggest. It's probably yeah. the biggest single minority or whatever the word immigrant ethnic minority group, yeah. ethnic group that's in the at the CIA in Korea like they want to come like if you come out of CIA and you go to Korea you're like gold you're it's like coming out of Harvard in, mm-hmm. in you know and, and Michael Anthony just got back from a Korea trip yeah yeah and just it went crazy like how cool yeah. I, and I went there with Eric Repair a few years ago I've been there with Ed Lee and when you take chefs there I mean it's like a playground I mean it's unbelievable how how uh, engrossed the, all the chefs are who go there I mean it, mm-hmm. they learn techniques and they you know Japan has been written about for you know years and years yes. and years in Korea is, is this topic that a lot of chefs aren't familiar with and I think our book uh, we've gotten great feedback from the chef community they're actually going to maybe make some of these dishes and put it on the menu like gamjatang is this dish that I cannot eat enough of it's pork neck and perilla black pepper soup uh, with a very porky stock so it's not the sour kimchi based stock and I've heard like maybe guys like Sean Brock might put it on their menu in Charleston you know I've you know possibly I'm, I might be blowing up Sean's spot but I, I know he loves that dish and I hope you know, our goal was really just to see how far Korean food can go. Mm. And it, we really are seeing chefs push it. It's great. Now, what's your background? You were a writer, a blogger? How did you get into the food space? I'm, Blo- I'm, you're a blogger. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, I'm a journalist, you know, blogger. Sorry, is that, no. is that if I didn't mean to be no, jarring? No, no, no. no Duke, you're busting there's, me there's, up. There's <laughs> all new careers that I didn't exist. Look. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a I mean, I'm a cook. That's all yeah. I ever was. I've been Same here, journalist for 13 years and uh, writing about art and music and film and food okay. somehow made sense for me because sure. I was just a really ambitious eater as a kid and um, I wrote a lot about international cuisines and Mexican you know Italian etc but Korean for me was something that I know I have a Korean best friend in um, that's not me that's not Dookie Hong <laughs> Dookie Hong is my new Korean best friend number two on the list. I have an old Korean best friend shout out to Jason O. Oh. he turned me on to Korean food you know I, I went to college with him. He would take me to the Korean restaurants in Madison, Wisconsin. We moved to New York around the same time. He would take me out to Queens and introduce me to the food. So as a journalist, I would go to these restaurants and say, wow, this is a great story. This is food that's never really been written about. So I kind of got into it, dabbled with it. And then Duke and I actually met when I was asked to do a guidebook. We, we, I went to 78 Korean restaurants in, in, uh, in, in 90 days. And Duke went to 30 in about 90 days. So we're that's going, a commitment, it's, man. It was a commitment. And you did this on your own? Like you it, lost a bet? We were, it, it, was, it was a bet I won, actually. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was actually a government-funded project. Korean government actually fund, funded it and gave us money to go and visit these restaurants anonymously and see the best and the worst of Korean food because there is mm-hmm. some pretty shitty kimchi chige out there. Not going to be the fanboy for all of it. But we really uh, connected over the, our love for Korean food, yeah. and that's where the genesis of the book was 
founded during that that small guidebook project. Yeah, and even, go ahead, Duke. Yeah, even for this book, like that, and people ask me like, oh, like what a great idea of Koreatown, like, and I tell them like, oh no, it was Maddie's idea. Like the white guy on the project came up with the, you know, the, uh, you know, basis for this book. He brought it up to me, and I was like, oh yeah, dude, this is a story that needs to be told. So that's why I was excited. I was like, yes, there's no book like it. It's not from a celebrity. It's not a hundred recipes of grandma's like Korean recipes. So yeah. for me, that was just super intriguing. And, the travel element. And know? like we really committed to not just doing recipes, but telling stories. Yeah. We have a lot of right. sidebars. We have interviews with like David Chang, Eric. Right, that's what makes it interesting. Because I mean, recipes, yeah. I mean, who, who yeah. needs to add to that pile of that tome of shit? Like, yeah. there's people that can um, crack out recipe books forever and we know yeah. their names and they've done it. I, yeah, give but, me a narrative. No, definitely. Throw some recipes in as sidebars and yeah. I'm in. I'm with you. And and also photography. We have to yeah, give credit beautiful. to Sam Harine. Sam, beautifully yeah. photographed. And Gabby Porter, our photographers on the project. You know, they, we didn't want to do like a studio book where it's like circle plate, circle plate, circle plate, circle plate, the same looking lighting. You know, we wanted to really have a rough feel to it, documentary style. So yeah. the book really captures Koreatown. We went in, you know, most of the time, not really officially. We just kind of went in and shot. It's like coming in Roberta's and with a big camera and just shooting. And it really produced a book that has a lot of energy and point yeah. of view. And we went in, like, we want people to know that we worked our asses off for this. Like, we drove in the middle of our, like, we would take a lot of these photos. So I laugh at some of these photos because we took it out of the back of, like, a Holiday Inn yeah. parking lot, like, because yeah. Sam liked the lighting. We're like, yeah. dude, we're, like, the cars are coming. Like, stop, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> so we, it was really, like, I think our ignorance was a good ignorance because we didn't know the right way to make a cookbook. Uh, we just kind of right. did it the only way we knew how. Only way. Like put our head down. Followed your guts. This is, this is what we want. Here's the story yeah. we want to yeah, tell. We, we really did. Exactly. It's a good way to call it. Yeah, we, we definitely just went out there and went for it and blew all of our money. You know, it's not a for profit. Was it really a for profit endeavor? We just wanted I to. I know what publishing's like. I know what advances are like. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, I did a book once in a while and they gave me an advance. I said, yeah. yeah, that pays for about a quarter of the tips. Yeah. yeah thank no. you. <laughs> Whatever. I, I've wanted to write this book, so. You understand the pain, brother. Like, thank you. You know the deal. <laughs> but we gladly did it because it's a passion project and yeah. something we really wanted. Uh, to do in Dookie, I think. No, I think it's so cool because I think, think it's the first book of its type in the country. Yeah. It's great. And it's so, it. again, as, as a guy that's married to a Korean that's yeah. sort of been a f- cheerleader of Korean food forever, so yeah. that, that, you know, like to walk into re- supermarkets now and see like kimchi on the supermarket, like Whole Foods, yeah. like you're yeah. kidding me. Like yeah. that's surreal. Great. As, a Korean, as a Korean American, it's, it's, it's that it, it kind of invokes the pride or, or the, the national pride. But it's just cool. Like even the past five years, like, mm-hmm. and we talked about it in a conversation before, like, you know, we started this project two years ago and we're like, is this book going to be relevant two years later when it releases? And, um, luck, luck, we don't want to call it luck. So we, it's kind of one of those things where like, all right, it's here to stay. Like we've stopped talking about, Hey, is it going to be hot next year? It's going to be hot next year. Like, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not like kale. You know, it's not going to be, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's right. right. <laughs> Korean food is not kale. Like we're exactly. going to be talking about it in a few years. <laughs> yeah. And it's just great. I mean, you know, even having support from you and even being on here and yeah. just talking about Korean food, that means like people are interested in Korean food. Huge. It's great. Huge, you know? huge, huge. Now your name of your restaurant is? It's uh Pek Jung. It's on 32nd. Uh, uh, between Fifth and Madison, and I have to say, I have not been. I'm going to come. We're going to fix that. You leave me your contact information. Absolutely. I'm going to come because I, I know this because I'm you know in that social media world like, peripherally. And I remember like when you opened, it was like holy mother of God. It was like in yeah. the, the first couple yeah. of weeks, Anthony Bourdain, yeah. Andrew Zimmern, David Chang, yeah. Danny Bowen, like yeah. all the A-list mofo's are like yeah. taking pictures. I'm like, who like, is this kid? Like we pay. We pay. I mean, it's not for no, me for sure. It's it, not. It's not Dookie Hong. It's it's really the food. Good. And, and we and we say it like people have been eating Korean food a lot. We didn't even know, like, hey, I didn't know you were eating Korean food in the 80s, you know, and people have this affinity towards kind of Korean flavors, and for us, we just try to do it a little bit. A little uh, bit better, so, and, yeah. and Dookie's just a humble kid, you know, hum- humble cat. I mean, you are just really, you're not, it's not about him, it's about the food, it's about the quality of the meat, and I think it's... it's the experience, too, I mean, it's it's weird, like, we yell at you when you come in, we greet you, you know, 안녕하세요, 백정입니다, which means welcome mm-hmm. to Pekchang, but literally all of our staff is yelling at you, and just... It's the, it's the whole experience. The food is a given. Like you, you're supposed to have good food. I feel like you're supposed to mm-hmm. use the right quality of meat, um, uh, the best quality mm-hmm. meat. So, um, and then you know when you get support like that, like there's not many things that can. Well, congratulations on the so restaurant much. and the Thank book. So the name much. of the book's Koreatown. <coughs> you must have heard it because it's been like everyone's been written about. <laughs> there's tons of blurbs, and for good reason. It's shining a light on a cuisine that's near and dear to my heart, a great world cuisine, um, and I think one that sort of has fought its battle without making compromises. And now the world coming to it. I think that's my take on Korean food. It's like my take on American wine palates. Mm. Is for a long time we had like really babyish palettes. We like sweet, mm-hmm. we like over oaked, we like these. Uh, and now we've moved our palettes have moved to point. accept mm-hmm. 
minerality, to yes. accept acidity, to accept flavors that weren't sweet. It's sesame oil. It's scallions. <laughs> it's fermentation. And I think that I think yeah. the American palate has moved to the Korean space Great rather than the other yeah. way around, yeah, which absolutely. is kind of a testimonial to, to the Americans, too. Mm-hmm. We're going to do your restaurant. I'm going to come in for the sure. uh, next couple of weeks for dinner. Again, Koreatown's the name of the book. My guests have been Tuki Hong and Matt Rodbard. It's a great read. Get it. It's a great story. It's a great cuisine. You'll read it. You'll love it. Mike, thanks, thanks a lot for having us on the show. Really an honor to be here. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Stay tuned. I've got um, Adam Gopnik next. I think he's if he's in the studio coming. A great writer for The New Yorker. Uh, and Peter Hoffman, who's the chef proprietor of Restaurant Savoy. They'll be with me next to talk about cassoulet. Stay tuned for that. And we'll be back. Hey folks, Mike Halameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, <laughs> this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, a um, little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So... If you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Uh, hey, great to have in the studio with me a writer whose who's work I've enjoyed for so many years. Uh, Adam Gopnik writes for The New Yorker, has been, and back in the 80s and 90s when I, I don't know if I had more time or a bigger brain or, or something, but I used to read The New Yorker, and you know it comes out weekly, and it's full of long-form art. It's like, come on, it's The New Yorker. It's a fucking gold standard. And at that point, Adam was living in, in, in Paris with his wife, and I would just read these wonderful, being a fan of Paris, Parisian food, French culture in general, I just love reading your take on 
from being an American expat living there in that city because it was just as great. You kind of captured it. So pleasure to have you and, and Peter Thank Hoffman, be here. chef owner of um, Savoy Restaurant. Really, one of the great restaurants, Crosby Street Soho, right. back 20- forty west now. <laughs> back forty west. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm that's dating right. myself. I know. Um, but yeah, twenty five years on that corner. Twenty five years, and that's a, that's not an easy kitchen. Nope, not an easy kitchen and, um, you know, just not a, an easy a, business, not an easy business and just a lot of transformation of watching the corner change. It's uh, Peter, Peter and I met in um, what year would it have been? When did you open? Uh, 90, 90. So 25 years ago when we were my wife and I were living in a in a rat infested loft three blocks away. And uh, when a new restaurant opened in Soho, it was like a little hearth being lit on an otherwise <laughs> what year was dark this? block. Uh, 90, 1990. Yeah, people forget. People forget. I mean, I knew David and Karen when they opened Chanterelle. Exactly. exactly. It was Same the fucking thing. Go- we all had artist friends living in AR, AIR lofts, and it was a ghost town. I mean, at night, it was, it if was. you weren't used to the city, it they, was, quote, right. scary. David and Karen opened around the corner from that same rat-infested loft, and it, it really was. It was an apparition or when Peter and Susan opened Savoy, and it's hard to... New York changes so rapidly and so overwhelmingly that it's hard to recapture what that time was just was like in Soho. Now, when you you know you can't walk without hitting a uh, uh, what shall we say a, a Russian oligarch shopping yeah, for Calvin Klein it underwear. Being one of my favorite places to one of my least favorite. Yes, places. isn't that yeah? And that has nothing yeah. to do with. I mean, you no, just no, happen no, to be no, in this giant shopping mall for I, tourists and foreigners and these brand name stores yeah. and you know was it lost kind of its funk and its grit? Well, you know, I, I, like, I yeah, I mean that sort of beacon of light in the in the midst of complete industrial darkness. It's like, I remember when I first came to Roberta's and it was the same thing. Yes, there, yes. Wasn't, there weren't all these people living it's out so here funny. and so all we, these businesses We, we here. didn't film here, but we did a piece on East Williamsburg for the PBS series and I said, I want to do the intro because we were in this neighborhood. I want to do the intro on the stoop of Roberta's and my intro was, you know, 10 years ago, this was the middle of fucking nowhere. Right. Like, if you got off on the L train on the Morgan stop, you you were either looking you for got drugs on. or looking <laughs> to get shot. <laughs> right. and, and, but, but the same could have been said for Soho and tried that in the late 70s and 80s. Because I lived, my first apartment was on 310 Greenwich Street in the Mitchell-Lama uh, complex back in 82. Troy was nothing in Tribeca. I mean, it was when Odeon opened, that was the beginning. And then Drew with Monterey, that was the beginning. But there was, there was no supermarkets, no laundries. It was just... No, it was, we had one, remember, warehouse. Doromas. We had one uh, little uh, bodega in the entire, in about a 20-block 20 block area. I will say, and this both dates me, I dare say, and also shows uh, that we all think our period in New York was better, and that's always true, and it doesn't matter. You can go back to 1770 and you'll feel that (laughs) way. Thank you. But one of the cool things was about that time, and I do think much though I love Williamsburg and Bushwick and the whole Brooklyn experience, is that we were retaking inherently beautiful architecture, all those cast iron buildings in Tribeca and, mm-hmm. and Soho. And that isn't as true of the Brooklyn experience, where very often you're taking back something that was originally, was less distinguished as architecture. It was a warehouse. Yeah, it was a warehouse. A, a, well, yeah. The cast iron also was a, were warehouses, warehouses but, but they a, were built at a different time, time and a and different a, quality. And a different thing. But we should let, let us not look back. We will turn into pillars of salt and and, uh, and not fleur de sel Belafonte had a great line where she's writing about I'm not gonna, the story, but she talked about uh, um, um, lurching arthritically <laughs> into being useless. You know, like yeah. that's what we sound like, right? Exactly. We're, we're lurching arthritically into irrelevance. And I'm like, that's as if we're not careful as old folks, that's what we sound like. No, yeah, New York is. As a guy that's been here since '82, it's never and, and and who knows people like Lou DiPaolo who have been here for right. five generations. Lou's the first one to tell you. As I would bemoan the you know the fact that Little Italy's now Chinatown North. He's like, dude, are you kidding me? You can't hold you you try and hold on to anything in the city. You're a fool. Everything fucking changes. Just let it go. The, Everything this, changes, and that's a constant. And in a way, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, with this whole Brooklyn scene you kind of started because it was more affordable as Manhattan became, sure. it's le- and, always, it, and with it became these little restaurants. Yeah. And now it's phenomenal. Phenomenal, the energy. I mean, these kids. I've got a sommelier after you. She's 25 years old. I met her in Bordeaux, and she's part of this like younger food movement. These people are just running with the fucking ball. As Americans, when we fall into something, we fall in love with it. We don't. We don't fuck around. We just run. Yeah. I mean, so we got. I mean, 
We I, run, though. The only problem is we run till we're out of breath. Then we fall over, and then we do Sort it. of, but the cooking's but, gotten so much better. Oh, my guy, goodness. I, I cooked in the 80s in really great restaurants in New York, and when I look at what we were doing then, mm-hmm. I mean, we had, what did we have to work with? It was like everything right. was coming in off the Baldor Cisco truck. You, you know, Peter and I were just talking about that, because I was re- remembering when I first wrote about Larry Forgione in Correct. American huge, Place. Huge, huge. First guy right. to put that stuff on the menu. Exactly, and I had the one chance in my life to have dinner with James Beard, because he was sort of a wow. mentor to Forgione. And I was remembering with Peter that one of the big things on Larry's menu then was he had halibut because nobody ate American halibut. It wasn't a restaurant fish. And he was evangelical for halibut. Kids, does that not mark the yeah. transformation of uh, from that time to this? David, so it's all b- good. It's all better. David Boulay, when they opened Montrachet, had black bass on barrigoule on the right. menu. Really, it, it, Black bass then, because I was a chef, uh-huh. was a dollar a pound. Mm-hmm. No Chinese were eating it. Yeah. It wasn't on Western menus. Yeah. Right. Repair exactly. started to use it because he was pushing the boundaries of fish. And, it, you know, I mean, Bernadette sort of changed everything in that space of seafood. But, yeah, it was a really different time. And I think that the when I look at what, what, what was what was getting three stars and four stars back in the 70s and 80s, you're lucky if you got one star with that shit today. The yeah. food's just gotten better. Yeah, and part of the inversion, too, was is that the fish that people were trying to sell then that was high-end was... Dover sole imported from France as opposed to what was caught on Long Island and right. um, and super fresh and that's what the black sea bass is. Yeah. Um, no, no, that that was the big thing. If you remember, my father-in-law, may he rest in peace, took us out in when we arrived in New York in 1980. We were living in a nine by eleven room. My father-in-law took us out to the uh, Conrie, which was still in was in business then. And their big thing was Dover sole flown over from France. Yeah. So it was shipped over yeah, and strawberries out of season, right? Always. How, how, like, how many days old is that <laughs> yeah, fish? If you exactly. went to La Côte Basse, Le Grandouille, Le Caravelle, Lutesse, in the lady, all of the menus were identical. It was lamb chops done a certain way, right. go, Dover sole, Gruyere, and Minière. Exactly. So you could interchangeably work on I mean, You could be the associate at a restaurant one night, go to the next restaurant, and you could just move your way it around. Was, and, 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 like, and to your point, I mean, I remember Jean-Jacques Rachou, Frankie Crispo was working for him. He was the first French right. chef that hired Americans, a really mm-hmm. important guy that kind of no one remembers who he was, but he was seminal. Everybody came through his kitchen. Charlie Palmer. All these cats worked with him. They were not allowed to work in French kitchens. They threw him out of the Vettel Club for hiring Americans. But I, so, I remember him. He was actually a great chef. His great. first restaurant, Le Lavandue, La was still La the right. best old-fashioned haute cuisine, classic French cuisine cooking right. I've ever he had. He still has that lease. I think he still owns that lease. Really? Huh. I remember Frankie Crispo was once signing, you know, you see, as the Americans were moving up, Frankie, there was a purchase order, a delivery, and Frankie was signing, and it was like Baldor had raspberries, and they were like $120 <laughs> a flat, and Frankie's like, no. And then he went to Jacques Rachou, he says, Jacques, what, you know, you didn't really want these things. It was dead of winter. And Jacques says, ah, we'll be the only restaurant that has them. We'll be the only ones with raspberries today. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. It's the pastry special. Because it was, I mean, right. <clears throat> that was the that was a philosophy. You know, we were supposed to talk about Castellet. Let's talk about okay. Castellet. We were here to talk about Castellet. We've been on air for 20 minutes almost, and we have not touched it. So you are hosting the what annual? The 15th, 10th? No, it's sort of more like six or seven. But Castellet um, Fest at Back at, 40 at West. Back 40 West. Of course, it's on the menu every day, lunch and dinner. But, um, you know, it's such a wonderfully open-ended dish. You know, it's, it started like... The, the uh, you know it it's cooking beans and meat with what you have right <laughs> thank you and uh, so there's no recipe for it um, you know usually there's confit of duck in it or maybe it's confit of goose or whatever but um, the idea that that people get uh, say that it has to be have the the following ingredients is just sort of whatever I mean you know thank that you. that tradition but, bullshit but. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's wonderfully open-ended and allows for improvisation on a form. And uh, so year after year, we've now had 40 chefs, something like that, come through and do their version of cassoulet. Um, And uh, so it's a wonderful exploration of being in the present and uh, reflecting back on the past. And it's that hearty French cuisine from Gascony, from the south, from around Toulouse that's iconic. And I remember eating it like, you know, your first time you have it in France as a young chef. It's like some fucking revelation. You know, it's gratin and crumbs and beanie good. And there's confit and a piece of this. And then the more I got to know French, chefs and hear them argue about it. My, my, my mentor, one of them, Christian Deluvier, once uh-huh. did a cassoulet with lamb and everyone was like, there's no lamb in cassoulet. Yeah, no, no, you can't. There's sausage. There's lamb sausage in <laughs> cassoulet. Whatever, you know, I don't know. But, but So... 
I mean, what, what's the history? What's the origin? It's from around Toulouse. I mean, but I mean, I guess it's, to what you said, it's beans and inexpensive cuts of meat. Because I mean, confit back in the day was what you did with duck's legs. You know, I think every uh, civilization, every cooking civilization around that part of the world, around the Mediterranean, has a beans and meat dish. Yeah, you know, in Israel, it's Cholent, right? Right. And so you the can't. Second Avenue Delis used to kill when Abe was there. Exactly. And that's and that's great stuff. And so it's sort of one of the basic things you do. Slow cooked, super exactly. comfortable. Exactly. But I don't think, but you know, it's a, one of the great peasant dishes. And, and that's one of the things I think that makes it appealing is you can dress it up. There's a place in Chicago now that does it, uh, you know, deluxe one with foie gras. And you can dress it down. It can be nothing but the hardest sausage that's left in the, in the cupboard. And a lot depends. The one thing I'll say is, and it's been wonderful going to Peter's year after year, because one of the beautiful things is the, um, the expanse of beans, right? We think of beans as a terribly stereotyped element in our cooking. But in fact, we've had some fantastically varied beans from the well, expensive tarbay to um, American varieties. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I, I want to really uh, sort of shine a light on that this year because each chef has sort of called out their bean. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And, um, and No trespassing. Yeah, no, no. I just mean like they, they're they recognizing. They're not, if yeah. I said, if I, I've written them an email and said, well, what are you serving? You know, because yeah. I, I want to put it on the menu. They're all coming back with, it's this kind of bean and duck confit or duck sausage or right. this and that and the other thing. And, so the um, bean is paramount. The, the bean wow. is, is primary. Um, and, um, and so then there are all these stories behind the beans. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Cesare Casella uh, from now up in uh, Sullivan County is serving a bean that's, that's called the the Hutter bean or the Hutterite bean, and it has a whole history um, coming out of Austria, being grown here, uh, part of a, a Christian community, sect, yeah. a sect, um, you know, and and, uh, and and so there's that story about how that bean got. Um, propagated and loved and protected and, and, and we're going to eat that and celebrate that. And um, our bean, um, we're cooking the Serrana bean that's also grown in the Catskills but comes out of Italy and um, it has its own story. And so, all of them are authentic. We had barbecue cassoulet, do you remember? We it, did, it, it, yeah. And they're all and they're all are authentic in the sense that that's what cassoulet is really about. It's not about conforming to an old Gascon dish. It's about using what you've got. Yeah. It's one of the most resourceful pieces of cooking that there that exists. I was at, there's a restaurant that's just somewhere on the Bowery, the guys from Pearl and Ashley Open Ravel, I don't know if you've been yet, really, I mean, Patrick Capiello and Brandon, they're cool as can be, and they got a great young American chef that worked in Paris, and oh, cool. he's got a castellet in the menu now, and it's funny you mention that, because he kind of deconstructs it, so it's the way it's not, it doesn't come in a gratin dish, bubbling. Right. But but he, the first thing he talked to me about was the beans. Yeah. He said, I get these beans, I get them fresh in the farmer's market, and then we, we dry them now, we're getting them dry. He buys them in the farmer's market at Union Square, and it was about the beans, and I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, this is where the world's come. There's a title for you, it's all about the beans. Well, right? I mean, that That's used to be true. like, that was just the the the, the luggage for, the, for for everything else. The beans were just the delivery. Well, and in fact, you know, we pay more, we pay a higher price per pound of the beans than we do for for the the duck and the pork. (laughs) Right. You know, the fun thing, too, is I did a judging once for when Ariane Dojan. Every year she asks me, and I'm always out of town that night or out of the country. And the winner was, um, I think one of the winners was um, Am Wells. Folks, you know, oh, they're great. Like extreme, She's so right. well. She, exactly. And sh- they did. They she swore did. there were duck testicles in the... In the uh-huh. That, was their that duck. sounds like sure. him. Yep. That sounds like him. They just, I just got an email Very from cool Sarah. But they just, they just, they're only doing dinner three nights a week now. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, Sarah, am I reading this wrong? I mean, first of all, power to you. Yeah, right. But are you telling me that you're now doing dinner Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and that's it? Yep. That's the what they said. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're just nuts. They've been, they've been following their own news. Well, they would do the duck testicle castle. But you get, you know, the the joy of it is, you know, the best cassoulet out of I've ever had, though, I can actually say. I love your cassoulets, Peter. It was at um, Alain de Tournier, another... Oh, he's great. He's a beast. Oh, he's a, totally. yeah, I remember he's him from good. years ago. Right, exactly. Great, great stuff. And he's from he's from Southwest. He's from the Southwest. We met him at his old restaurant before he blew up. He was the, right. a one-star, two-star guy back then, and Paula Wolfert introduced Gascon. us. Oh, true Gascon. Correct, true Gascon. I was working for Delouvrier, so I was kind of set up, and I remember he came out, my girlfriend, then my wife now, and he made a menu for us, and then I, and I said, so, chef, what's it like? You know, how do you feel? He says, I love having two styles, because, you know, with three styles, you're walking a tightrope every fucking night. I can have 
have fun with two styles. I can experiment. I can play around. And then, of course, he went on to get three for the other one in Paris. Of course, they all say that. And then it's right. I went three styles. I went three styles. But he's yeah. cool. Yeah. Guys, thanks so much yeah. for coming in. Well, your shout out. Where, if, if there's any seats left, how do people find them? So go on the website, Back 40 West, or uh, Back 40 NYC is the website okay. for Back 40 West. And you'll see the Castellet tab. Um, or give a call to the restaurant. And see if there's any openings and get your ass in there. It'll be a real treat. And if you haven't been to the restaurant on any other night, go. It's great. 25 years you're an institution. It's yep. a testimony. And the cassoulet is on the menu day and night, cooked in the fireplace. Um, Wine, beans, and sausage. What else is there? And Adam, it's a pleasure to have met because, again, it's so nice to put a face on a guy whose work I've admired for years. Your food really? writing is wonderful. And as a guy who grew up, I mean, that's all I've ever done is really cook. I, I'm really. I don't like most food writing. It's, you know, it's this sort of a, a genre that too many journalists got in that don't know what they're talking about, but you, you can tell you love it, that you I, you walk the walk. I thank you very much. That's love to get the back you on sometimes. If I can get your contact information, leave it with my engineer. I'd love to sure. have you back on and just talk about your your time in New York City and food and continue love this conversation. Do. And Peter, the same with you. Great. Stay sure. where you are, folks. My next guest is great. I met her in Bordeaux. <coughs> she was with Patrick Capiello's tribe of young Psalm rock stars. Her name is Erin Healy. She is works on the floor for Mark Four Jones restaurants. She'll be with me in a couple of seconds to talk about how a 25-year-old knows so freaking much <laughs> about wine. I need to know this. Stay tuned. That's what's next. September, I'm in Paris with my camera guy because we're filming something for PBS next season about. Yeah, I just, if I say Paris, I'm in Bordeaux. <laughs> so last September, take two. Hold on, edit that out. So uh, last September, I'm in Bordeaux because um, I wanted to think. I mean, I grew up drinking Bordeaux wines because I'm an old guy, and if you were a chef in the 70s and 80s in a good restaurant in America, your wine list was basically Bordeaux, Burgundy, and Champagne, and it was cheap then or affordable. Let's put it that way. So I've loved Bordeaux wines, but they've really shot themselves in the foot in the last 15 years. I think they've lost a generation of wine drinkers and psalms. I am astounded. I mean, the American wine scene, in terms of what we appreciate, has moved so far since then. Like, what we're drinking now is so crazy. Anyway, but I'm in Bordeaux. I'm staying at a hotel. We literally had checked in a couple of hours before. And I'm coming down the elevator for my first walk of the day. And I see this long line of kids with their luggage. And they look <laughs> like they're Americans. And then I see the one guy. The skinny guy with the full sleeve attached. And I'm like, fucking Kathy Ellos here? I'm not going to say anything because you guys are tired. Let you check in. Obviously, I'll see you. And we did. We saw you every night. We would cross paths. I'd be having a big glass of alcohol and a cigar out on the street. And you guys would be (laughs) on your way to Flacon for these crazy sessions. But I got to talk to you. And you're going to have to repeat this because I got your story. But I I love it. So my question to you and to Patrick was more rhetorically to Patrick was... (laughs) A, who the fuck are these kids? Because yeah. the oldest one was like 31. And the youngest was 22. 22, and you're in the middle there on the low side of the middle, actually, at 24, 25. And I just remember like saying to Patrick and then saying to you, like, how the F is it possible that a kid your age knows this much about wine? So tell me the backstory. You had a military family. You traveled a bit. And you ended up, I'll, I'll, I'll plunk you down to the end. You ended up in Scotland for college. Ireland, actually. Ireland. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so you <laughs> tell it. You tell Bring it. out my Dublin accent. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. I traveled all over the world with my dad when... Uh, we were in the Air Force. And, you know, it really started for me when I went on a lycée exchange to France in Champagne when I was 16. 
And I had such an incredible experience with my family there, and my neighbor was a winemaker, and he used to give me a bottle of champagne if I went out and tied vines for him. And, you know, I had no idea at that time that that was something that I would ever be interested in doing professionally. I just, it just sparked a love for it in my, you know, side life. And I always had the big dreams of being this, like, 007 agent. I wanted to go to Europe for history and political science and come back and be in the military, work for the State Department. And I was in uh, Europe for four, just over four years. Uh, wrote my dissertation on uh, the French soldiers in 1915 in the oh, trenches. Jesus, uh, <laughs> that's really depressing. It was, you know, but it was. It <laughs> when was they were gassing them, when they were rats running around, that was. And the Germans had like all the good shit. I oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, they, <laughs> they, it's it's you know one of the most f- fascinating stories about I mean, the uh, German trenches had fucking concrete and electricity, and the French were they were like using like two by fours and twigs. I mean, later on, you know, I, I have this like major fascination with war history, but you know, I have this tie with wine in that. It just because when I was in Champagne, you you read these stories about these cellars that they built behind cellars to try and hide their most valued yeah. wine. And there's this uh, this book called War and uh, War and Wine, and it's a great great book. And it tells all of these fascinating stories about World War One, World War Two, and Europe, and like these super like intricate ways that the winemakers were able to continue their business and also save their business and save the history. Uh, in bottles uh, while these cellars were being pillaged by Germans or French on the German side. And vineyards being pillaged and bombed. I mean, we were just in Alsace also last year, and because of where they sit geographically, I mean, that was Germany at one point in history a couple of times, and that's where the Germans came straight through. And those guys that remember, or whose parents, we have pictures of those villages in Alsace just bombed out. Vineyards, towns, just decimated. Oh, and it's still like that. I mean, you go to Champagne, and you go to Reims, and it's the... Uh, Notre Dame de Reims, and like they've had to rebuild it because it was bombed, and it it's it's still there. Um, but back to you. Yes. <laughs> not, all right, that was your station. But so so then you so graduate college, you come. Wait, just you tell me what happens next, the next move. We'll so, let's put you at like twenty or twenty one. Yeah, so I moved back to Washington D.C. and I was working at the State Department in D.C. Uh, trying to pursue my 007 dreams, <laughs> and it just wasn't necessarily working out the way that I originally had dreamed it and it got to a point where I kind of came to a crossroads and I sat myself down and I had a very serious conversation and said well I work at this wine bar after you know as my second job and you know I like that way more than I like going to the state department every day not to discredit that at all but it just for the way that I was going about it it just wasn't for me so I had my dad's GI bill and I quit the State Department. I and I moved to San Francisco, and I went to the International Culinary Center in San Francisco, and spent uh, three and a half months there, just literally with my nose Born in a down. book. And I, you know, I was living in an apartment by myself. I had nothing else to do. I was in this tiny town called Campbell, and there's nothing there other than a wine bar, a craft beer spot in the International Culinary Center. And so I just, you know, studied. You know, studied my butt off, and at the end of it, I came out and I was super motivated and super passionate and had you know. So you're reading, 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 reading. What are you drinking while you're reading all this stuff? Because that wine bar has gotten really boring really fast. I drank a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so just buying wine, tasting, buying wine, tasting notes, 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 notes. Absolutely, and we you know had a nice discount with the school where we were able to go to a wine shop and and you know get, get a little bit of a break off of it. But you know, I had this apartment with a south facing uh, south facing balcony, and so I would change into a bikini every day and sit out in the middle of January in hot Campbell, California, and just read and sip on some low alcohol like Riesling or something like that, and and study. And I drew maps. That was my big thing. You know, Ian Cobble was one of my teachers at ICC, and you know, he's all about the maps. But it's it's a true and proven I method. I can picture them. It I don't works. know why you said like the Loire Valley map just came to my mind, and all oh, those yeah. wine maps, and of course Burgundy. And I mean, they're germane. I mean, if you're a believer, as we all are, in yeah. terroir and soil typicity and elevation, I think a map might come in handy. Absolutely. And the French who have been in most areas have been farming those soils for so freaking long. I think they know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. And it's a visual thing, too. You yeah. know, it's like some people study better by reading. And I'm not a studious person by any means. Like, I like to study, but I'm not a reader. I like to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I like to taste. I like to draw. I like to see pictures. And that, for me, was really something that helped a lot. So the American Psalm Society, that stuff too? 
I have not done any of that yet, though. Okay. I'm, you know, my boss is a product of the ASA, and he, well, he's a product of himself. He's absolutely brilliant. Yep. Uh, and but he taught at the ASA for quite a while, and so he, I'm very familiar with his path through that. You know, I just happened to choose the the CMS, the Court of Master Sommeliers. But you know, there's so many options for you to learn about wine and to cert, you know, quote unquote, certify yourself if you feel that that's something right. you have to do. Correct. Well, uh, in your business, it only it may or may not be because in terms of promotions and accreditation and yeah, I mean, it distinguishes uh, because this is an interesting thing. I, I mentioned. I, maybe I did mention to you, but it, when you go back historically in New York, it's, you don't have to go back far at all. You go back to, say, 1999, 2000, 2001, and you look at all of the restaurants back then, great restaurants, whatnot. I don't think there were six songs working in New York City at that time. Oh, it, it's tr- it's, crazy. it's It's crazy. I mean, there literally, it was not a job description. And then suddenly in the aughts, it just became, it's like a rocket ship went off. And, you know, thanks to guys like Roger Dagorn and Paul Greco and the sort of the pioneers, the, the early ones that came up, <clears throat> there's just this interest now around wine that, like, like you can't be taken seriously at a if you own one restaurant with 60 seats you probably have someone who's a beverage director or son oh absolutely which is nuts and there's a horde of us as well <laughs> I mean I mean it was Levy Dalton I think when Levy in one of his podcasts was talking about like have we hit the critical mass is this like the end of has it gotten too good for too long is there going to be like a culling of the fields you know it's funny I I read an article recently that was talking about how you know questioning whether sommeliers are relevant anymore um, but you know, at the end of the day, we're we're more storytellers than anything else. And you know, my greatest passion at my job right now, and I've been there for almost a year. It's like weeks away. Uh, is you know, our essential job is not to put in front of someone something that we want them to drink. It's our job is to find what they want and put something in front of them that they like. Whether they want Napa, Cali, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon and they want to drink Napa and you put Napa in front of them, or let's say they want to drink Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon but they want to try something different from Italy. So I'm going to give them the 2007 Paul Bayo Sagrantino de Montefalco from Umbria. So, you know, it's it's in introducing someone to something new but they're going to like it based on their taste and not based on what I want them to drink is the most important thing about our jobs. You nailed it. I mean, Roger Dagorn, who I was lucky enough to, I don't know if you know Roger, but one of the original American Master Psalms. And when I first got to New York, my second job in 83, 84, 85 was sous chef at the Maurice restaurant. Delouvrier was my chef. Roger was on the floor. Master Psalm with his test of animal. Like, yeah. What's this all about? And then later on, as I would, I'm still no Roger, you know, he said the exact same thing. He says, you know, my job, I think I asked him when he was at Chanterelle, he said, you know, my job is to listen to customers. So, hi, my name is Roger. Have you ordered your food yet? You know, because that's when I would order wine is after I've ordered my food, because that's kind of the one that's, you know, it's... The wine has to match the food. It's kind of hard to order the wine. Well, anyway, and Roger said, you know, I just ask customers, like, what do you normally drink? What's your price range? What do you like? And then I'll just throw out suggestions. Get the feedback and hopefully make them happy. And the, the, one of the funniest moments I ever had with my boss and one of the greatest learning experiences that he's ever taught me was we were playing this game one night. And we were having a couple of drinks. And, and he, he looks at me and he goes, actually, you tell me what your top five wines are on the list or top ten wines are on the list and your least favorite ten wines. And then, you know, I created the list, and it was, you know, all fun games. But he looked at me and goes, well, it's, you know, top ten wines, irrelevant. But bottom ten wines, he goes, well, why don't you like those wines? And, you know, I gave my reasons, but they were all personal reasons for me. And this was right probably in my first six months of working at Mark Forgione. And I learned so much because the conversation we had after that was so kind of uh, just, it showed me where my flaws were as a as a sommelier in my restaurant because I didn't like these wines because I didn't like these wines and it was okay that I didn't like them but it's not okay to not like them for your customer if that's what your customer wants that's an interesting point right because you are in that business yeah yeah it's funny that's actually a really interesting discussion right especially the the ones you don't like because I've been having we have sommeliers on this show almost on a weekly basis and um I always have this conversation that because I grew up with European wines in my mouth that is what I that's the arc. So when I began to first discover California Cabernets, you know, back in the, in the late 80s, before Seasons was doing stuff back then, and, you know, the 90s, you know, those over oak Chardonnays and these just fucking 15.5 fruit bomb. I just, what the fuck is it? it, it it's not drinkable. I don't yeah. like it by itself. I don't like it with food. I don't like it. Yeah. So I have shy, I, I have run from American wines, and now I'm forcing myself, to your point. Like, I was at Astor the other day, just killing some time. Was, I was biking past, I'm like, I need a bottle of wine. Let's go in. And I just went right to the Canada, New York section, and and and, and I, I'm trying to find 
Because there's some really, you talk about that. There's some really interesting winemaking going on in America now. We can talk about Europe forever, and I talk about Europe all the time. Let's let's shine a light on what's happening in California, in the Finger Lakes, in the North Fork of Long Island, with American vigneron picking not the typical, like, we can talk about, I mean, we we think of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot as the blends in, in, in... Kappa in Noma Sonoma in in Sonoma and Napa and then of course Chardonnay but then now you're seeing Viognier now you're seeing people now you're seeing Albarino now you're seeing, seeing Trousseau and Pulsard Trousseau and Pulsard right Thanks. these really obscure talk about that where what's on your list what are you drinking in that American space that you're finding fascinating uh, California wise I closer on all the way uh, definitely not the weirdest wines that are coming out of California but I had the pleasure of meeting Gideon the other night he was doing a wine dinner at Rebel but then came into my restaurant the next night to say hi to Matthew because they're dear friends and he was he's such a passionate guy and he's got such a connection with the earth and he's making these really truly unique wines from Sierra Nevada foothills which is I mean you think Zinfandel when you think Sierra Nevada foothills and you think weekend tour wine tourism and this guy has I mean he kills his own goats on the farm he's totally biodynamic he's like very kind of into the whole living ecosystem and he makes Syrah and he makes Pinot and a couple other things but he what's just the name of the, what's the name of the producer? Closer on C-L-O-S-A-S-A-R-O-N thank you uh, but he's truly truly an incredible human being um, total mad genius wines and they're meaty and they're full bodied and they're spicy, but they're California. They're Sierra Nevada. It's not the Rhone Valley. It doesn't taste like it's coming out of the Rhone Valley, but it also doesn't taste like a 15% alcohol Syrah coming from elsewhere or Napa or where it's going to come from. Yeah, I, I finally had there. one of Raj's Pinot Noirs. Don't ask me what took me so long. <laughs> <clears throat> but you know, another guy who his, his, his wines are. Picked, fermented, and aging before yeah. his neighbors are, are, are even picking their Pinot Noir. Yeah. So this restraint style, this kind of tilt towards... And people are moving towards it. I yeah. mean, it's, it's it's without a question. There are so many people trying to make cleaner styles of yeah. Chardonnay, imitate Chablis. I mean, look at Arno Roberts' you know, Watson Ranch. It's you know got a touch of richness, but it's beautifully Burgundy-esque. And people are really trying to recreate that. I think, you know, when in the heyday of... Chardonnay in California, you know, they were trying to make the big, rich Burgundies to emulate yeah. Burgund, you know, Burgundy. Right, right. But then they took it even further and developed a brand. But then, you know, I think as wine becomes more of a, a you know, whether you want to call it a fad or just a popular beverage in the United States, you know, away from spirits, away from maybe, you know, Bud Light or something like that, uh, you know, people are, it's scientifically proven that as your palate develops, you want something that's less sweet, you want yeah. something more bitter, you want something cleaner, you want more minerality, you want more acid. Yeah. And, you know, so as those people who were drinking Napa, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon and those really rich, you know, not sweet, but rich Chardonnays are now starting to look and taste things from Europe and be like, wow, these are great too. And uh, I think it's an interesting conversation because it doesn't discredit anything coming from Napa, but it also opens the palate to some, just to more, you know, everything. And you're maybe one of the last questions, because we were there on that trip, and you were surrounded by, by um, your generation, which I don't even know what you are, post-millennials, I don't, X's, Y's, I don't know, but whoever, whatever you are. But in, you're on the floor of your restaurant, and you were, that day you were with a, a bunch, and I see it all the time. This is kudos to your generation. I'm just floored that kids in their mid-20s today in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, really all around, are so stoked about wine. Do you see that, and why do you think that that is? Because it's really, it's something that grown-ups used to come to later, like, you know, you go through your Jaeger shots days and your this days and your beer days. But, you know, to have a palate like yours that's so informed would take years. But you're there, and you've got a lot of company. You know, it's funny. I think that Psalms are almost seen as, like, rock stars these yeah. days. Uh, they are rock stars. Sorry. Sorry. You're, you're rock stars. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting. I think people glorify the profession almost probably too much sometimes. Um, but things like the Psalm movies. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how many times people come in and have, have, have you seen that movie, Psalm? And I'm like, oh, actually, Ian Cobble is one of my mentors. <laughs> you know, what's up? Uh, but, you know, I think it's it's such a fun job. And I think that the, the heyday for young Psalms now is that it's accessible. Like, you can do this. If you love wine and food, you can work in the restaurant business. You can be a sommelier. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, the 
someone who do, does something else and then, you know, wants to be a sommelier on the side, but like, you can make a career out of it. And that was, when I left the state department, that was something that was life changing for me. When I yeah. sat down and realized that I could make money and make a life, like have a career where I in wine. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fascinating point. And you're right. And you get to travel the world. You get to hear the stories. There's, I mean, Alice Fire just had a book come out about the, the wines of Georgia. You know, the, the Republic of Georgia, have, they've been making in, in, insane wines in this antique way for 8,000 years. So the, there's history, there's narrative, there's travel. It's, it, it, there's never been a better time to do what you're doing. Yeah. The wine lists in America, the wines that come here have never been more diverse or better. It's you're in the right place at the right time. People are excited and they want to talk to someone about yeah. it. And they want to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. And, you know, I think that people, as much as people sometimes have some fear because they fear that they're, they're going to extort them, they, no. they shouldn't because I think, you know, my greatest joy is whether it's a $20 bottle of wine that I'm putting in front of you or a $1,000 bottle of wine. Again, I want to, my greatest pleasure in, in my job is when I get to put something in front of them and get that aha moment, whether it's exactly what they thought it was going to be or it's something new and you're improving their exper- experience as a diner, you're improving their experience you know, in lifetime, you know, they say that, you know, money can't buy happiness, but money buys experiences and experiences are really it. And that wine is part of that experience. If you're, if you're at a restaurant and there's a Psalm on the floor or someone that want, that is the best, that's the person. I mean, that's why would I want to make it? Why would I want to make a decision? And I know a lot about wine, but you work there, you know, the food, you know, the list. I always defer to you guys. I mean, it's then cause it's just, it's the best call. And it's, I, when I go to restaurants, I read a wine list, but I never pick wine for myself. I always let someone else pick for me. You know, I tell the son what I want, and I let them pick for me because they know their list. Yeah, they and know they, their vintages. They know, and they know the food that's coming out. Absolutely. They're, 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 they're inside. So take advantage of that something, folks. We're in an amazing time in America with the wine world and people like Erin Healy. So you're on the floor at which restaurant? Name it. Shout it out. Restaurant Mark Forgione. Restaurant Mark Forgione, who's we just Larry got mentioned earlier Larry's by Adam Gopnik, really one of the godfathers of, of American cuisine, was at the beginning of it back at the River Cafe, and then his own restaurant. So. It's crazy generationally. His son, does he still have that crazy mohawk? He does. He does. Oh, he's got that mohawk. It's, he's got to lose that mohawk. I Whatever. mean, it's, it's, it's his just look. Him. It's his thing. It's what he does. Greco's got the little goat beard. He's got the mohawk. Yep, exactly. All right. Thanks for coming on, Ern Healy. You can find her at Mark Four Jones Restaurant in Tribeca, New York City. Yes. Thanks for coming on, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Mike. You good are, to see you. You are a rock star. Stay tuned for, for next week's show. I don't know who's on, but it's always good. We always get good people on. Thanks. See you next week, folks. We didn't drink anything so far. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 